Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Welcome to Emory Innovators from the Hatchery, Emory Centers for Innovation a program that showcases conversation with Emory faculty, staff, and alumni who work in innovation and entrepreneurship or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Today, we're excited to welcome Dr. Dirk Schroeder, Adjunct Associate Professor of Global Health at Emory, who holds appointments at Rollins School of Public Health and Goizueta Business School. He is also the Managing Director of the Advancing Health Innovation in Africa program, or AHIA, based at Emory. Dr. Schroeder is a self-described accidental entrepreneur who in 1999 co-founded and helped build Hola Doctor Inc. into the largest Spanish language digital health company on the internet. Hola Doctor was acquired in full by Pan American Life Insurance Group in 2017. Fluent in Spanish and Indonesian, he has lived and worked in 30 countries. Dr. Schroeder holds his doctorate and master's in international health from Johns Hopkins University and a postdoc from my alma mater, Cornell University. He completed his undergraduate work with honors and distinction at Stanford University. So Dirk, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Emory Innovators. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So I'd love to start the conversation today by having you tell us a bit more about your day-to-day -day responsibilities and areas of focus in your dual appointments at Rollins and Goizueta. Sure. So um, as you said, I think it's important to note that I'm an adjunct uh, faculty member in, in both schools. So uh, I'm part-time essentially. Um, my primary role with, uh, with Rollins right now is uh, teaching a course I teach on uh, social entrepreneurship for global health. Uh, so we'll go into that, and I'm sure through the, through the conversation, how I arrived at that and, and what's entailed. Um, I'm also at Rollins on the, um, on the Dean's Council, um, having left, and uh, I've always kept, even though I left uh, a full-time position at Rollins in 1999, um, as we'll discuss, I've, I've always kept a, a toehold there, uh, done some teaching, and also um, worked with students uh, over the years. Uh, at Goizueta, it's a fairly new appointment. Um, so um, just uh, happened during the pandemic and, and, and just sort of starting to get my feet wet there. But that appointment did coincide with my uh, also part-time role as managing director of uh, Advancing Health Innovation in Africa, an Emory-based uh, program that uh, Dennis Leota uh, co-founded and founded uh, maybe over 10 years ago, actually. So I look forward to talking about that as well. So you've already uh, called out one topic that I wanted to call attention to, which is this is not your first teaching appointment. Uh, right. And then in 1999, you relinquished tenure to build a digital health company. And as a, another professor in this conversation who also stepped off the tenure track to pursue business dreams, mm -hmm. I know how scary that can be. And I wonder if you could talk about motivating factors in that decision, especially any factors that helped you to understand that you couldn't not take a chance on your startup. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because I will say it was uh, uh, totally unexpected. I, I, I use the phrase accidental entrepreneur. I think you used that in the introduction. Um, and it really was totally unexpected. Uh, 
Um, I you know, was at Emory uh, full-time 1993 to 1996, doing all of the, uh, the things you're supposed to do to get tenure and, uh, and, and did. Um, got tenure on a, on a Monday in September, and I know that because on that Friday, I was at a cocktail party and a, a friend said, well, what do you think about this internet? Is it a fad or is it gonna go away? So this was pre-first bubble. Um, as I say, Jeff Bezos was still just selling books out of his basement, you know, so this is uh, it's not very long ago, but very long ago on, in internet time. And uh, I think in retrospect, what I've learned, and maybe I knew it a bit at the time, is that uh, I'm someone that just loves the, the climb. I love the challenges and I love the, the, the journey. And then sort of when I get to the top of the mountain, I'm like, okay, next, next mountain. So uh, although I love academia and I, you know, obviously continue to be affiliated uh, this idea of, of starting a company and, uh, and, and trying to build something uh, was totally foreign. Um, and, I, and I will say this is an important sort of perspective, I think, or understand, to understand my journey is that uh, my father's in academic medicine. I didn't know business people. I didn't even like business people. I just didn't have, I wasn't exposed. Um, and so, so I, I really have learned a tremendous amount about the, the sort of uh, straightforwardness of, of, of um, selling something to somebody and you know if they buy it they really want it so we'll, we'll get into that as well so a couple of things that I'd love to pick up on there one is just on a personal note and I don't think we talked about this when we chatted briefly before but um, there's some similarities there that uh, to, to my story um, in professionally mm -hmm. my parents were also professors uh, mm -hmm. grandfather was a professor um, all in pedagogy and the um, same sort of situation where business wasn't on my radar, didn't really know business people or business wasn't necessarily appealing, but these things, these opportunities come up. And uh, if you have the, a disposition to always being kind of open to the next opportunity, uh, they tend to lead you in place, different directions. And so um, it, it, that's either accidental uh, mm -hmm. or it, it's very purposeful, but uh, sort of without a plan. Um, so I wonder if you could, um, if we could maybe back up a little bit and talk about this question of whether uh, it was your predisposition and openness to new experiences or, uh, you know, or something else that really led you on such a roundabout path. And this is a theme that we've often noted in this show, that the career trajectories of innovators and entrepreneurs are, are rarely straight lines. So mm -hmm. uh, let's maybe zigzag a bit, bit and go back even further uh, in your journey, because if I've understood your bio, uh, you spent some time between your uh, undergraduate studies and graduate studies um, really working uh, a bit around the world. So I wonder if you could talk about you know, some of those mountains sure. you climbed before you sure, moved into sure. these other... And I think you're right. I mean, I think that 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 experience, these experiences uh, that I'll tell you about, um, did sort of set me up um, for for being open to entrepreneurship. Um, so I uh, uh, pretty much grew up in California, uh, Northern California, which uh, turned into Silicon Valley. Um, and then uh, my first sort of international experience, and this was on my own, just uh, seemed interesting. Was a, a summer program in Norway on a on a sort of student exchange. Uh, and then my mother, my parents had been divorced a few years prior to that. She said, well, if you're moving to Norway for the summer, let's just all move to Geneva, Switzerland for the year. I thought, well, that was great. Uh, she had spent some time there in college and, you know, needed a break. And so um, that really sort of set in the international orientation. Um, I then started at Stanford, 
about junior year, people were headed, you know, to Europe. They were going to France and, you know, Paris and Florence and places. And I said, well, I'd just been there. There must be an alternative. And there was uh, Stanford at the time. And I think still does has a program called Volunteers in Asia. So I took a year off, uh, lived and worked in Indonesia, um, learned Indonesian, uh, learned how to teach something. The only thing I knew how to teach was English at the time. So even then was sort of probably pretty marginal, but, uh, but taught English and um, returned to Stanford. That set me up. I got a Fulbright fellowship to, to return for about uh, three or four years uh, to Indonesia. So was doing um, work in global health, public health, health and nutrition. Um, actually, my Stanford under, undergraduate advisor uh, was Ray Martorell, who is now really is out, now at Emory. And so we separated and then came back together at Cornell, and I essentially followed him here to Emory. So I, I credit Ray with many things in my life, including, including uh, uh, ending up here at, at Emory. Uh, so, um, so did the Indonesian, so I, I think importantly is that I was doing international health in the field. So getting my hands dirty, so to speak, trying to understand sort of why people do the things they do, what are the challenges? Um, and then, uh, and then I decided to go to graduate school, uh, and, and figured if I was going to stay in international health, I better learn Spanish. So, um, so, uh, uh, did my dissertation work in a, in a, in a village in a Mayan village in Guatemala for about three years. Um, and then uh, through Cornell, then ended up in, in, at Emory. So, you know, I really value the fact that I had that field experience, uh, could, could start to understand how much of um, health behavior and, and the health uh, sort of situation of, of underdeveloped, less developed poor countries has to do with culture, um, has to do with access, or just has to do with straight up poverty. Uh, so I think that's an important, that's an important element to this journey as well, is that um, you know, through graduate school, and here as well, you know, people in public health will say, well, you know, really the core problem is the people that people are poor and they don't have jobs, um, but we're public health people. So that's not really our area uh, to do much about. Um, and that's one of the things I, I, I like, of course, about social entrepreneurship is there's a very uh, important part of job creation and of elevating people's economic situation alongside with um, improving their health. So a quick question, were your undergraduate studies at Stanford also in public health? They were in human biology. Yeah, human so biology. pretty cl close enough, yep. Mm -hmm. And so that then enabled you to go back uh, to Indonesia and do public health work. Could you talk a little bit more about that early moment of public health work and sort of how it opened your eyes to certain realities beyond your disciplinary studies? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, just first, you know, I think anybody who's traveled and traveled to uh, poor countries, you know, sort of shocked the first time uh, as I was. Um, and I, you know, I was a student, I lived in a I lived uh, with a family, no running water, no electricity. Uh, when I returned, I got typhoid, um, almost died. And this was pre-mobile phones and pre-internet. So my mother was not happy to hear I was in an Indonesian hospital for 10 days um, on the verge of death. Um, but here I am, so I got through that. Um, and I, I think that, uh, yeah, just sort of seeing all of that um, also was always in the back of my mind as I was, uh, part of, I think, important work around doing research and developing public health programs. But there's always this thing in the back that sort of said, okay, this is great, but it gets put into communities that 
um, you know, have to make the decision between healthcare and food or healthcare and, and, and school. So, uh, so, so there's got to be another piece to it. Um, and that, I think that, that really was always there sort of in the background, um, thinking where, where can I learn enough to be able to contribute to, to that um, uh, aspect of, of, of helping people as well, it, helping them essentially with their, with their jobs and, 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 and earning um, resources that then they can use to uh, improve their lives beyond health. So your last couple of answers have pointed to an interesting um, intersection of forces, I think, for academics uh, and, and entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, through this work in public health, you were exposed firsthand to genuine public health issues sometimes. Yeah. Sounds like very firsthand. I personally, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, then you also saw that uh, much of uh, you know, many of the realities of public health were just realities of life circumstances, um, lack of access to certain things, uh, lack of, uh, of you know, good employment um, that could potentially lead to better outcomes. I wonder uh, if you could talk a little bit about how those uh, moments then uh, influenced your thinking as you know, fast forward, what, seven, eight years, and now you've gotten tenure, but you're, you're still seeing an unmet need. And also how those realities have uh, shaped you as a public health thinker, because you pointed to something else interesting, which is so often within our disciplinary approaches to problems, we see certain delineations of what's in and what's out of scope. Like this is a public health issue, this is not. But in reality, um, people don't live disciplines, they live lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wonder if you could maybe uh, reflect a little bit on um, that decision to leave when you made the jump and, and uh, how that is related both to your real work in public health on the ground in Indonesia and uh, your relationship to the discipline of public health. Sure. So I would say that, um, you know, the, 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 the decision, it was not totally altruistic. I want to be, you know, clear about that. I mean, this were, these were the go-go days of the dot-com boom. Uh, everybody was, you know, making zillions of dollars, and not, then lots of people were losing lots of money um, a, a subsequently. So uh, there was a little bit of, like, like, like anybody, it's sort of like, okay, we're going to start this company, we're going to build the WebMD in Spanish. Uh, you know, it'll take two years. We'll retire on the beach, and then we can do anything we want. You know, I can give it all back. Um, sort of the Gates model didn't quite get there, but uh, but but um, you know, so there was there was plenty of that at the beginning, uh, and that said, when Roberto is the name of the person I co-founded the company with, is Nicaraguan born um, uh, MBA uh, from Vanderbilt who built some businesses. So he was the business guy, and I was the public health guy, and you know, we 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 made it work. Um, you know, when we've co-founded the company, I did say I'll, I'll step off this most secure job on the planet, which is which is you know tenured professor of, of, of uh, academic in an academic situation, to the least secure, which is startup entrepreneur, um, and and we'll give this a shot. But I do want to make sure that uh, we talked a lot about are we going to you know sort of the for-profit motive of this, and I talk a lot about it you know in in, in the talks I give, and I just gave a talk just. At, uh, school of Public Health this past week or this week, um, I, I, I needed to be comfortable with that. And so in our founding documents, actually, we have a business mission 
and uh, I made sure there was a social mission. So in 1999, uh, by becoming the largest preeminent Spanish language health resource on the internet, uh, we were gonna make money. We we're gonna have resources. We we're gonna be able to scale and affect a lot of people. Uh, but also we had a social mission that was uh, by doing this, we were advancing health equity and, and, and helping to narrow health disparities. So this was important because you know, there would be times, of course, when money would be tight and we'd have to make decisions on priorities. And I would hold up our founding documents and say, okay, no, we can't cut that program because uh, this, is part of our, um, this is part of our DNA. This is part of our mission is that we need to, to keep an eye on that. Um, and this was early, but, but as uh, listeners may know, now this is a big thing and there are you know, B Corps and, 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 and sort of social mission driven um, uh, businesses is, is in vogue, of course, and I, th and I think it's great. So I think this is an interesting point about um, having this social mission baked into your founding documentation, because to your point, there, were, there was sort of less of a focus on that uh, within a lot of corporations or even a lot of startups uh, 20 years ago than, mm -hmm. uh, than there is today. But what's so interesting about that example is that it wasn't simply a vision. It was a means of genuinely making hard business decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think that too often uh, missions are, are paid some lip service or people don't take them very seriously. There's something you can point a customer to, but as a foundational principle in that way, um, they're a very powerful tool. Um, I wonder if you could re maybe reflect on whether your training as a public health uh, you know, practitioner or the time that you had spent in the field sort of predisposed you to being a socially uh, minded entrepreneur and, and maybe did it just predispose you to being an entrepreneur in general? Is there some yeah. connection between practicing public health and being an entrepreneur in your mind? Yeah. Um, so so first on the first part of what you, you asked about, um, certainly, certainly the, the, the public health and sort of my core um, sort of view on life uh, predisposed me to, to, to that mission, sort of a mission-driven uh, organization. I, I do want to, because I'm sure I'll forget some things during this interview. I, I, one of the things I want to emphasize to listeners um, is that uh, one of the ways that we were successful, first of all, let me tell you a little about a, a pivot story because I think it's important. So we were focused on, on Latin America. We thought we're going to build this big um, website. Uh, we, we, we sourced um, some content um, to, to, to do that. Uh, we pick and you know, cherry picked the best stuff, translated it, culturally adapted it. We're using the same encyclopedia, for example, that WebMD used at the time and I think may still, still use. Um, we we're focused on Latin America, and then when the bubble started bursting, uh, we uh, we thought, uh oh, you know, we weren't generating much revenues, and we just knew that we weren't going to make it in, uh, in, unless we did something different. There just wasn't enough advertising revenue. There weren't enough people on the internet, even in, in Latin America, to, to to support what what you know, sort of a WebMD advertised driven model. So um, you know, as as things tend to happen with entrepreneurship there was this, this thing happened, which is the 2000 census came out and said that Hispanic and multicultural populations here in the United States are the biggest, that's the biggest growth area, right? So we thought we were meeting every Sunday. We said, well, 
maybe instead of looking at Latin America, we should look up here at the US and maybe there are healthcare systems, hospital systems, um, um, health plans that are struggling to communicate and serve their uh, Hispanic and multicultural patients and constituents and members. And sure enough, you know, there, there was the same sort of boom. There were all these healthcare systems, all these hospital systems that really didn't have a clue. Uh, they, you know, this cultural competency was just coming around. They didn't know how to, they didn't have people who spoke the languages. So essentially we said, okay, we're down to about $30,000. We took our last money and uh, we bought a, a ticket to, to Texas and a booth. And we said, we're gonna go there to the Society of Healthcare Strategy and Market Development. And we're going to see if we can find somebody who will buy this stuff we have. If not, we'll shut down. So we were like that. We were like, we weren't taking salary by then or anything. Um, and so we went there, we came back and, uh, and, and Roberto uh, said, okay, we sat back down and he said, okay, time to dial for dollars. And, and I, don't, I didn't even know what he was talking about. I said, what do you mean dial for dollars? He said, you're doing M through N from the attendee list. You have to find somebody to buy, to license our encyclopedia we have in Spanish or we're shutting down. So I call Linda, I call short, make the trip a little shorter. I call Linda McClung and I said, this is Dr. Dirk Schroeder to get through her secretary. I said, we just met in Texas. We've got the Spanish language encyclopedia. Linda is the head of a 50 hospital system in Texas, uh, chief marketing officer. I said, would that be useful for your patients? And she said, it would be, we would love that. And I said, great. And then we're chatting and she said, well, how much is it? And I said, well, could you hold please? And so I said, Roberto, how much is it? How much is it? And he said, uh, $70,000 a year. You know, WebMD was paying a million. So I get back on the phone with Linda and I said, Linda, $70,000 a year, three-year deal. And she said, okay, great. So we're chatting. I thought, well, that's great. And then she says, oh no, it's not gonna work. I said, why isn't, oh, oh really? She said, well, we don't, have a, we don't have a Spanish website. We don't have any way for anybody to find this content. So we're just gonna have to, you know, we'll call you later. I said, Linda, uh, listen, if we do this deal today, I will build you at no additional cost, a Spanish version of your website. And she said, okay. And I hung up. And so I said, Roberto, good news and bad news. Good news is we're not going out of business. Bad news is we need to learn how to build Spanish language websites, which we did. Krista's Health is still a client. We still maintain their Spanish language websites as well as hundreds of other Spanish language websites. So that was one of many pivot stories and survival stories as an entrepreneur. But it's also important because what we ended up doing is building a business to business arm that I ran uh, serving healthcare systems, helping them with their Hispanic and multicultural patients and members. And we still work with big Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, pharma companies and others. And this I think is an opportunity. The reason I'm telling this long story is I think there's a real opportunity for public health knowledgeable subject matter experts to essentially get in there and be working at a much deeper level with these big healthcare institutions that either have the resources or have access to the resources, um, help them do a better job. Uh, and that's what we ended up doing. We ended up launching, relaunching the, the business to consumer site uh, uh, a few years later and, and did grow it to, to the largest site. But this business to business um, line was really an important part of 
uh, not only what we did, but also our survival in the, in the interim. So there are so many pieces there that ultimately yeah. we could unpack because sure. there's the scrappy startup story. There's the great pivot story, uh, yeah. which is important. But I'd actually like to focus on one detail that kind of came in the middle of that, which was the importance of kind of cultural literacy mm -hmm. in selling something through. And I wonder if you could maybe reflect on this question of cultural literacy, both in terms of public health and entrepreneurship, um, in terms of really understanding audience, so genuine empathy-driven solutions and yep. uh, how that need for those kinds of solutions really informs both public health and innovation or entrepreneurship work. Sure. Yeah. Um, so another sort of piece of what I'm doing that, that, that's relevant to, this, to my answer is um, we were acquired in 2017, as I mentioned, uh, in 2016, uh, it, it was still questionable whether we were going to actually ever have the exit event. So I, um, I thought, well, I've learned some things, but I haven't learned everything there is to know. Um, and so I think I'm, you know, I'm going to write a book about it. And I went out and started interviewing people. So I interviewed about 115 people around the world uh, for a book uh, that's titled Getting, Getting Past the Pilot, uh, a Practical Guide for Health Entrepreneurs and Innovators. So I'm finishing up the manuscript, but I bring it up now because I was essentially asking, you know, VCs, you know, head of Apple, Google, Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins. I mean, it's a it's a who's who of sort of who buys innovation, um, and that's that was my focus. And I said basically, I had two questions. You know, why do entrepreneurs keep getting stuck at the pilot? What are they doing wrong, and what could they do right? And then we talk. Um, and 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 I bring that up again because one of the things that came up over and over and over is that entrepreneurs just don't understand their customers as well as they should. Uh, and that's, you know, to the heart of your question, I think, which is, um, and, and we know this, people know it, it's the same thing as, you know, the number, the other big one, which is they don't understand the problem they're solving as well as they should. Uh, and the third one, just to put it out there, is they don't understand who's supposed to pay for it, but, but we'll get to that. Um, but 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 this this idea that you know you really need to understand the customer uh, is 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 a very complex question within the context of healthcare, because you know you create some innovation, that innovation is often used by a nurse or doctor uh, who is benefiting essentially a patient, but then neither one of them are actually really paying for it directly. It's the insurance company or the government or something. So. You have this very complex sort of relationships in terms of building the value proposition. And then, you know, these things don't get, innovation gets stuck in healthcare because innovators don't understand how important it is that that new thing doesn't change the process very much, doesn't add time to the nurse or doctor's schedule, um, is obviously well accepted. So there's, there, there's these components that are really, really important. Uh, so that's that, that's sort of at the innovator, uh, patient, doctor, patient level. And the other thing that that I see over and over, and and one of the reasons I have to say I think we were successful is because um, the decision makers at these big healthcare systems, uh, they're ages people, but also, you know, I've got a chapter in the book called All C Level People Don't Think the Same Essentially. So if you're, if you're talking and selling into the CTO of Blue Cross Blue Shield, it's not the same as the CMO or the CEO. These people have different 
uh, reasons for investing in better services for Hispanics uh, uh, or for multicultural or for Medicaid um, uh, patients. So anyway, the, the point is just that uh, I, I actually think about, you know, cultural anthropologists. I mean, really, I even talked with a company that, that, that they had a team of people when they, I think it was Philips or a big company, they have a team of people that are trained. All they do is sit and watch. They just sit in the nurses, they sit in the hospitals, they have things, they time people. They essentially are observing, like Margaret Mead observed, you know, people back in the day, uh, they are observing from a cultural anthropology perspective, the interactions of all of these peoples within the healthcare system or the hospital system, and then figuring out how their new shiny thing is gonna fit in with all of those, uh, within all of that chaos. It's interesting, the comments there reminded me of a conversation I had uh, an episode or two ago with uh, Sharon Close, who is a, uh, a doctor of nursing practice and uh, is helping to innovate uh, many of the sort of practices and instructional methods within the School of Nursing. She's also uh, someone who has developed several devices to solve problems she's seen firsthand. And I've been struck by the fact that uh, many nurses and public health practitioners are fundamentally entrepreneurial or innovative in their approach. And it's so often because it's really human-centered design 101. Yeah. Um, and you, you start by seeing a very definite human need that you realize you need to solve. And then because of the systems within which you work, there's also a question of needing to scale that solution. Yeah. So automatically, in a sense, you're predisposed to, to being entrepreneurial. But you put your finger on some other piece of that that I hadn't really thought about is, and that's that question of who pays. And yeah. it's one thing to solve a problem uh, for uh, you know, a specific health uh, you know, um, environment for a patient, for the doctor and patient, um, but another to figure out then how that relates to this complex question of funding for health initiatives and, and who the real client or customer of this device is. I wonder if you could um, maybe tell a little bit more about, uh, you did, you gave a story about who became ultimately the, the main client for Ola Doctor, but I'm wondering if you could um, maybe talk about some of the other models you considered, who you thought your customers were going to be, and, yeah. and maybe uh, another you know, device or product where something similar happened and, and uh, in the health space where somebody misunderstood sure. who that customer was going to be. Yeah. Um, and, and to be clear, what, what we ended up with at Ola Doctor was essentially, I think, four lines of business. So we have, um, we have got a little circle uh, we, we ended up establishing a, 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 so we would get to these hospital systems or these, you know, managed care plans. And we'd say, oh, you know, we've got all this stuff, uh, programs, culturally relevant programs, diabetes programs and content information, that kind of thing. Um, and, and it would be great if, you know, you should use this to help your, your folks. Well, you know, there was no strategy people didn't know how this would fit into anything. They didn't really understand what their, the challenges were that their patients or members had or the consumers. Um, so we said, well, we can help you with that. So in, in essence, we, we established a strategic consulting division and con strategic consulting and research division that I ran. Um, so we would do essentially needs analysis for these healthcare systems, Oshner, Highmark, Blue Cross, Anthem, the American Cancer Society we did one for. 
Um, so what's the, what, what's the, what are the challenges? What are the opportunities uh, with um, Hispanic and multicultural and low income populations that are interfacing with your organization? Uh, we would present a roadmap. We do research on specific things like medication adherence, breast cancer screening. We're doing work with COVID now um, as well. Uh, uh, so that's all obviously really interesting. Um, and then we said, okay, here, here's, what, here's what your constituents need. And, and we have some of this stuff that can help you with those needs and we don't have some, everything. So you should go and talk with these other people to help you with that. Um, so, 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 so that was a business model. They need, often need translation. That was another sort of line of business. Um, and then we had the website and the advertising and other things. Uh, so there's, you know, that's good and bad. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's bad because it's more complicated. It's good because as some things went up, you know, other things we sort of were able to pay the bills and grow the company uh, because we had a couple of different revenue streams. Um, so when I'm working with entrepreneurs, Mostly, if they're early, I'm saying focused on one or two. Lots of entrepreneurs want to do a lot of stuff. You know, they sort of want to try different things and do too much. Uh, anybody who's talking to Matt about going into China and they haven't launched yet, you know, no. You know, get something right and then get 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 cash flow positive, and then we can talk about China. Um, so, you know, the multiple revenue streams I think is important. Uh, but that's more, even more sophisticated than I think where a lot of entrepreneurs are, and I judge hackathons and things, and it's really just even the basics. So I almost called the book, The Health Plan Should Pay For It, because uh, I was, this is what was the catalyst to me finally pulling the trigger on doing it. Uh, a, a professor, uh, part of, you know, this is consistent with our conversation today, a professor of a known university in the Midwest, I won't name it, uh, was put in touch with me and had this great thing um, to help doctors communicate with their patients of lim limited English proficiency and really was a pretty, pretty snazzy thing. Told me all about it, had won all of these competitions. And then he started saying, and this is, you know, it's important that you help us, you know, I'm really happy to be talking to you so you can help us raise money because my wife and our, I are almost done, done clearing out our 401k. I'm like, oh, whoa. So they're paying for all this stuff, building this new shiny thing. And I said, let me stop you there. This, is a, this sounds great, but who's going to pay for it? And there was this sort of deathly pause. And he said, well, the health plan should pay for it. And I said, Oof. they should pay for it, but they're not going to pay for it. I know they're not going to pay for it because I spent 10 years trying to sell them this kind of stuff. So there's that. Or, or the frequently sort of younger person that's you know, has a similar sort of, this is my new shiny thing, who's going to pay for it? They say, well, we're thinking about B2C, but if that doesn't work, we'll go B2B. And then if that doesn't work, well, and you just can't do that. It, you just have to be thinking about these things early in the process. And it's not that hard. It's just people don't like to think about it. And, and you, just, you just have to make it a priority um, to, 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 to understand how money flows in healthcare, if that's what you're in, and where you're going to fit in. And optimally, there's some budget line item on, on, uh, in the budget for the hospital system or the health plan or the pharma company or whatever you're selling into that uh, is close enough to your thing that they don't have to spend three years trying to, 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 to procure new funds because that makes it a really long sales cycle. So it's interesting, to your point, many people, the business model is vague. 
right? Well, yeah, it's B2B, but it could be B2C and it could, right. and you, you know right there that probably mm -hmm. the focus isn't uh, sufficient. Um, conversely, you may have some people who really are dialed in, uh, but then the market changes and they're not able to flex. So what strikes me about your story was both that you found a viable model, the market changed around you with kind of, you know, the, the dot-com bust and changes mm -hmm. with uh, internet consumption and also uh, lack of penetration uh, within uh, the market and you had to pivot. So I'm wondering a, how you developed a mindset that was both targeted and flexible and then if we could kind of pivot from there back uh, from, from the market and the entrepreneurial side back to the educational side and, and academia, I wonder how do you leverage what you've learned about that mindset that's sufficiently focused but also flexible in the ways that you help organizations like AHIA or you help uh, innovative and entrepreneurial young students at Rollins? Sure. Um, so... First of all, on the on the on the flexibility in that, I think an important an important sort of lesson learned. You know, um, I give a talk on called 15 things as I learned as an as an accidental entrepreneur, and I do credit Roberto for a number of these, many of these, um, and, and 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 you know, one of them was him him leaning over me. This was after that first sale I talked about, and saying, okay. You know, we need, you know, here's how much we need to cover the costs uh, for the next few months. You know, this, this, you know, be focused, don't waste time. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and he would say, you know, on occasion, work like your mortgage depends on it because it did, right? I mean, you know, this is, this is different from I'm working while my grant didn't come in, or I'm, you know, working at a company and, you know, this is that. And I know out there someplace the, uh, the sales are going up and down, but I'm going to get my, you know, my check each month. Well, if you're an entrepreneur and you're starting something from zero, that's not guaranteed. You know, you're, it's, it's, you either sell or you don't sell. And, and so, you know, this idea that, that sales is really the lifeblood of, what this is about or not not it, nothing happens without sales let's put it that way i mean unless you're inventing something and you're going to license it right so but i'm talking about a startup um and i think most entrepreneurs i certainly didn't understand how serious that was i mean when we started the company there were 13 companies that had the same idea and we know that because they competed for the you know to get the rights to translate um most had had received venture capital uh, most were had offices and you know this and that. Um, after the dot com bust, uh, there was one company. There was us because we didn't take venture capital. We tried to. We didn't get it. Uh, so we were a little later and just a little more on top of the fact that we were just never going to run out of money. So um, uh, or we almost did actually. You heard that story. But but um, but 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 this this idea that you know you entrepreneurs are, are are i think inappropriately focused on raising money they see they read about all of the money but series b and the 100 million and the 50 million then we're as a community i think we're responsible for sort of pushing that i mean i go through you know read all this stuff i mean you know it's all about how much tens of millions of dollars this company raised or that company raised um yeah that's fine 
but I'm more impressed. I'm more impressed if this company sold a million dollars. You know, I'd much rather sell a million dollars and use that money and not have to sell equity in the company than just keep raising money and keep raising money. So, so that's part of one of my mantras and you can hear I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, but boy, if you can just generate your own funds and that's what we did. I mean, you know, we just didn't, we didn't bootstrap the whole thing but we, we, we never took VC. So it gave us flexibility. Uh, so so that's, I think that's part of your question. You asked about, uh, what's the second part of your question? I, I'm sorry. Uh, the second part was yeah. about then, uh, so both the maintaining that focus, and you really spoke mm -hmm. to that. Um, and then the second part was about the, conversely, maintaining a focus that's, you know, that's that narrow and that, you know, passionate, but still being able to flex and yeah. uh, not getting too caught up in a model that you've, you've really honed in. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that um, it is, it is tough. I don't, there's no, there's no magic sort of formula to it. I, I would say on average, we probably, we probably pivoted and, and tried a few too many things. Well, let, let me, let me mm -hmm. put it this way. Mm -hmm. Having gone through what we went through, I think the best approach is to, you know, obviously do the work to pick something you think is going to work and, 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 and maybe one or two things. And okay, we got these two things. We're not sure which ones I was on the phone with, with a company I'm advising who's in Ghana, uh, the company's in Ghana. Um, and, and basically I said, okay, let's, we don't know which of these two business models the market's going to react to. Let's, let's launch both of them, you know, on a small scale early, we're going to measure the heck out of it, data, 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 and we're going to see. And after three months, we're going to shut one down and we're going to go with that one. Right now, we just don't know how the market's going to react. Um, so it's, it's, it's purposive, it's, it's conscious. Um, the mistake I think we made, and I think a lot of, uh, a lot of companies make startups make, uh, is that they're doing one thing and they, they, they've heard that pivoting is really a great thing. And so they're going along and then they say, oop, time to pivot, shut all that totally down. And then they go over here because they've heard about Netflix, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's rare. It works sometimes, but uh, and then they put all the eggs in this basket. That maybe doesn't quite where they move here. And you sort of get this thing where they're pivoting, 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 very hard, you know, to mm -hmm. sort of get enough rhythm. Uh, the clients are confused. The identity is difficult to understand, right? So, mm -hmm. so what I would recommend, my advice is do what you think's worth. If that's looking like it's not working, you know, keep that going while you're testing a few other things. Mm -hmm. And, and then go to the one sort of like here, two tests, shut one down here, two tests, shut one down. You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's more purposive than this sort of whipsawing back and forth, which, which I see a lot as well. So is there great lessons on how to both be focused and to be able to be flexible, but in a way that is really purposeful and, and conscious and uh, mm -hmm. measurable. Um, I wonder how these lessons learned have now informed your work as you come back to the academic side. Uh, it's one thing to say that public health professionals and entrepreneurs have a predisposition to being human-centered designers, but it's a very different thing to have been through this 20-year arc of going through this firsthand, feeling the pressures of making those sales and uh, really knowing that uh, your mortgage depended on it. 
but then also being able to take uh, purposeful and uh, data-driven uh, you know, detours as needed. Mm -hmm. So how do these things inform now your work as a pedagogue? And, and specifically, do you find yourself giving advice to say groups like AHIA, Advancing Healthcare in Africa, that you're helping to support, or, uh, or students who are very you know, kind of uh, innovative in their thinking based on these years of experience? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, just to, to, to sort of add one more thing to, to sort of how I ended up where I'm at now. Um, so the company was acquired in 2017. We actually, it was an all cash deal all up front. We didn't even have to stay, it was awesome, um, but we did. So we stayed for a couple of years and then I am now uh, stepped down from that and I consoled back to them. And I stepped down from the full time. That would have been easy too, uh, to sort of just continue that, um, essentially to do what we're doing today um, uh, share what I've learned and, and help people uh, do what I did, but um, faster and bigger. Um, and, and we were big, but you know, there's bigger. So, 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 so that's, 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 that's sort of my state of mind. Uh, he is a great outlet for that. So advancing health innovation in Africa, as I said, is a, about a 10 year uh, plus uh, program uh, that uh, until now has been very successful at uh, holding workshops in South Africa. So about you know, half a dozen, a dozen uh, Emory faculty um, uh, do a, have been doing a summer workshop, I think, in, in, I think it's in the summer, in, uh, in South Africa with African entrepreneurs, um, educating them about how to um, get their innovation essentially started. So focus pretty much on the earlier phases, uh, sort of between the, you know, getting it out of the lab essentially into the early stages. Uh, that's a real expertise, of course, of Dennis and others um, and Emory. So, so, so there's a good fit there. Um, and, and, and so now what we're doing is taking those lessons and, and then what I've learned and, um, and looking at how we can scale. So in other words, how we can go from, you know, how can we go from a dozen or two dozen innovators to a few hundred or having, uh, centers around the continent, um, and 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 of course, like like the world, doing things uh, online and and more in a continuous fashion. So that's we're developing the strategic plan right now for for the for for next year, um, and it's a great, again, it's a, a, for me a great outlet for applying what I've learned in the type of conversations today with African native African entrepreneurs who have tremendous ideas and tremendous potential, but just, you know, don't know, you know, uh, sales models, protection of IP, uh, how to access capital, all, all of those things that um, entrepreneurs around the world struggle with, and in particular um, there. So I'd like to open uh, this up to questions from the audience and anyone joining us today, I would encourage you to put your questions in chat. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. And um, as you think of any questions you might want to ask, uh, I would like to ask one more, if that's sure. okay. And that is, uh, I'd like to pick up on this thread from your last answer about the desire to share and to help and to give back. And obviously, you're able to do that uh, in an academic setting, through your teaching, through the support of groups like AHIA. But in my experience, there are very few successful one-time entrepreneurs. And if you've had uh, one success story, chances are uh, there's another place where you see a problem 
that you still want to solve and you still feel you might be able to come up with a solution to do that. So I'm wondering if you could share with the audience if there are still any problems that are top of mind for you uh, that you really want to solve for either as a public health professional, professor and practitioner or as an entrepreneur. Yeah, sure. Great. Um, yeah, appreciate that. So, so when I stepped down um, and through the first year of the, the pandemic, really, um, I was what I call dating some uh, early startups uh, that, that had approached me, wanted me to get involved. Uh, and I'm, you know, pretty selective. And if I'm going to do something, I want to have it, make sure I've got enough time and am able to, to put the time in because uh, that's really the most limited resource. Um, so I ended up with one that, that I'm very excited about. It's called uh, Shepherd Systems or Shepherd Cares. Uh, and essentially, we're like we built a platform for Hispanics, um, we're building a platform for uh, children who are taking care of their aging parents. So adult oh. children taking care of their aging parents. So all this stuff, I'm sure some of you have been through it. Um, you know, where's the will, Bob? And uh-oh, did you know mom fell down? And, uh, I, you know, who's, who's going to talk with the nurse and all of that stuff, which is, you know, flowing around on emails and, you know, in, in boxes and, you know, where's the documentation. Uh, so we're building a, a, a tremendous platform. We're launching um, actually in the next few weeks. Uh, and the folks uh, that are part that started the company and I'm, you know, have joined in the last year are from the senior space. So very big area, really important. I'm excited about it. Um, and you'll hear more about that. And then uh, the other area, I think, where it's wide open. I mean, Emory um, and, and Atlanta, really, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think could play a, a, have a global impact in essentially public health entrepreneurship. I'm going to call it public mm -hmm. health entrepreneurship. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and we, you know, Boston sort of nailed, right, medical entrepreneurship, we don't need to try and catch up, but I mean, with CARE and ACS and all of the institutions we know about, um, and then of course, we were just living through the, the need for better surveillance and better public health data and everything else. Uh, there's enormous opportunity. Um, and, and a lot of this money is you know, flowing it through Rock Health and Startup Health in, in San Francisco. There's a lot of activity on the West Coast. As I said, there's a lot of activity in Boston. There's some activity here, um, but I would argue, and I've been talking with investors around town and some others and around the country, um, I think that Atlanta could really become the public health capital of the world, as we say we are, um, by building a more entrepreneurial and innovative ecosystem around entrepreneurship and innovation. Obviously, that's what you're doing, and that's why we're here today. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a need for, I think, some, you know, some high-level strategy and some uh, real funding. And we got people working on it. I'm, you know, give mm -hmm. credit to everybody who's doing that. But um, I am uh, excited about that, passionate about um, you know, making the Southeast a, a real hub for that. Um, and, 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 and I, you know, welcome uh, a, a conversation with anybody who's interested in that as well. I'm glad that you brought that up and sort of uh, brought that into the record and mm -hmm. that I uh, hope that folks who are listening today and listen to this podcast, podcast afterwards will feel free to reach out 
uh, on that topic. I'll be curious about this because it, you know, it feels like all the pieces are here and there is a real rising ecosystem here uh, in entrepreneurship, innovation, now in VC to match our strengths in public health, in healthcare, uh, in, in burgeoning strengths in pharma, as we've seen in many recent stories, uh, and the many other industries where Atlanta is uh, a leader within the US and, and to some extent the world from media and communications to transportation to logistics management, all sorts of things. Feels like all the pieces are here. The part that's always a curiosity to me is whether you can get all those pieces coordinated because the other truth about Georgia is it's sort of decentralization. Um, and this is in many ways a legacy of its, its county structure. We have more counties than just about any state in the union, maybe more than any state. Um, and it seems like we have this whole tradition of garnering incredible resources, but not quite coordinating them. So hopefully yeah. you'll get uh, more people reaching out on that. I want to note there's a great question uh, from the audience. Uh, do you think your typhoid and the experience of almost dying impacted your later entrepreneurial risk tolerance? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure I'd thought about that. Um, for better or worse, I think I was pretty uh, high risk before and after. I'm, I'm, I, 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 sort of, <laughs> I sort of view that as one of, you know, one of a few, few different things. Uh, my, my trip to Norway, maybe it was my trip to Norway. Um, so I was a, you know, Eagle Scout and these kinds of things. And then uh, I ended up with a, a family at this, to, to, uh, who had a, a, a also a, we were 15, 15 year old son and uh, his friend. And this is Norway. I mean, we so he took us with this canoe up into the Norwegian Alps, and we had the three boys, no cell phones. This is way back, late seventies, and uh, and he said, "Okay, you guys look good to go. I'll I'll see you down at the fjord in two weeks." And I'm looking at this canoe. We had five days of food, and he said two weeks, and he's and like and I said, "Well, hello." And they said, yeah, we got fishing poles, we got blueberry pickers, we got mushroom collector things. So we were survivalists. We ended up with extra food by the time we got down there. Uh, we didn't see a single person um, for seven days. And he said, here's two quarters, call me when you get there. I mean, so I don't know, I survived that. I don't know, I'm not sure that the typhoid was much worse than that, or not worse, but, but more extreme. So I don't know, I love that stuff. and. Uh, I think you know entrepreneurs need to be risk takers because you got to be you got I've got a picture in my in my presentation with this little kid you know on the roller coaster because it's an up and down it's not a straight line that's for sure. That's that's a great story. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. one way to learn self reliance, right? That's right. Um, so another uh, great question from the audience: How hard was it to keep the momentum? of this creation of new culture around finding solutions for the multicultural communities in different aspects of healthcare? Um, so, so help me interpret that question. I'm just trying to answer it, sort of what, what she's thinking. Yeah, so it's a question from the audience. I'll do yeah. my best, but my yeah. sense is that you'd created this momentum around some yeah. of these questions of uh, finding cultural solutions. Mm -hmm. How hard was that to carry this into other aspects of healthcare? And, okay, uh, yeah. So, so I think I, I'll answer sort of one aspect of that. So, so one thing that I would say uh, was exciting and also a little frustrating is that these big corporations, uh, and I'll use uh, 
one of the big Blue Cross Blue Shield plans we worked with quite a lot. Um, people, someone would get excited about, you know, a multicultural uh, yeah. initiative. There'd be three years of funding. Everybody would work really hard. There'd be all kinds of, you know, great programs and, and efforts uh, and success, measurable documented successes on, you know, getting more Hispanics to get their eyes checked for their diabetes and all this kind of great stuff. And then you know where I'm going, right? And then there's a down year. Everybody's, you know, there's, uh-oh, we don't have our, our medical loss ratio quite lined up. You know, and some dude with a pen, probably a dude with a pen, you know, in, in some, some, some big building lines items out the $10 million or $5 million or whatever it is, you know, for multicultural program for shareholders. That's frustrating. And, and that's, that's hard to see. And I saw it. Um, but, uh, you know, I took some of those lessons, as I said, worked, you know, did a strategy for the American Cancer Society. Um, uh, Care International has a program called Care Social Ventures. Uh, they're doing some great work. So I'm trying to take some lessons from that and essentially work with institutions that are um, really committed to this, because there are some that give it the lip service, um, which is frustrating. And we just have to hold them accountable. I mean, I think we have to hold them accountable as much as we can, um, uh, but, but also you know, work, with, work with the plenty of organizations and, and, and individuals who are committed to, to, to changing the world you know, um, in the right way. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining us on Emory Innovators today. This was a great conversation. I think it's really instructive uh, for people to hear personal stories of this sort sure. to understand that there's never a direct path and that it takes a lot of dedication and uh, some pivoting, uh, some good focus. Um, and I also am just very pleased for the fact that you're back here now and you're able to bring this wealth of experience, uh, yeah. both as a public health professional uh, and as an entrepreneur. And so I wish you all the Great. best with your work here at Emory and uh, with your work with AHIA. And definitely, I hope you'll keep us posted on this new initiative. I think yep. that uh, all, all of the aspects of coordinating care for, uh, for seniors is going to be one of the biggest cultural challenges for this country in the coming years. So please keep yep. us posted on that as well. I will do that. And, um, you know, again, I welcome, uh, you know, I encourage people to reach out uh, in any way. I'm pretty easy to find um, DirkSchroeder.com or through LinkedIn or, uh, you know, and, and I continue to work with you as well um, mm -hmm. and the hatchery over the next year and more to, uh, to see what we can do. I love it. Yeah, All right. Great. Thanks again okay. for taking the time. Sure, no problem. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.